0: Boulevard. Thank you so much for coming, those of you who are here present in the auditorium, but also those of you who are uh, with us online. Uh, we're just so glad that you're with us. Those of you who are online, if you've been with us online for a long time, I just want to make sure you know we're uh, in the process of building an online community. We really want to uh, we have people watching from all over the country and from other countries as well. We want to build a community out of that. I'm glad you're with us. Um, glad to be back. Julie and I had a great vacation. We've come back now and uh, you discovered we have a barn full of preaching stallions at North Boulevard. People who are capable of all sorts of ministry. So uh, different guys have preached at different campuses in the last couple of weeks and they've all done awesome as well you know. Um, so I just want to say this. I, I actually, I want to show you something. So I want you to look at this sock for a second. I have about 40 pairs of this sock, and I'm telling you that because, well, in 1997, I was uh, preaching in in Seoul, Korea, and there's a a, um, market down there, Itaewon is the name of the market. Some guy was selling these socks a dollar a pair, and I liked them so much, I bought 30 or 40 pairs, and I've been wearing them for 22 years now, 23 years, and here's the cool thing, they're all exactly alike. You never have to match them. So like, I just, it's just always the same socks over and over. And I'm telling you that story, first of all, because I just think you would probably care to know that as a joke. Here's the deal. I hate change. And oh my goodness, have we had to adapt in the year 2020 so far? You know, it's eight o'clock service, no wait. Nine o'clock, it's outdoor, no wait. It's raining now, it's indoor, it's 10.30, no wait. Is it mask or mask only or no mask or what? Thank you so much for being generous about all the changes that we're having to make. Um, It's just been nuts trying to keep up with all that's going on. And some churches are struggling with it. You guys have done really awesome. You've been generous about the changes. Uh, You may or may not know that the mayor of Rutherford County last night came back and said, hey, another 30 days requiring masks. Uh, He's doing that for our well-being, And we ought to cut our leaders some slack because it's a really, really tough time to be making decisions when you know lives might be at stake. But I do know it means for us, we have to go back to the drawing board and try to figure out how we're going to navigate the next 30 days. So pay attention to the schedule, remain flexible. Um, continue to show the grace, the amazing grace you've been showing to one another so far. God's going to do something amazing. I'm very sure God's going to do something through this pandemic. He would not have done any other way. I was in Jerusalem a couple of years ago by myself. And uh, so Jerusalem is divided into four quarters. The old city of Jerusalem is. There's a Muslim quarter. The, they say Christian quarter. They mean Roman Catholic and uh, Orthodox the Jewish quarter, and then there's what's called the Arminian quarter. And these are Arminian Christians who will tell you that they're the oldest uh, Christian group. They they date themselves all the way back to the year 30 A.D., kind of like we do. And uh, they've had this quarter of Jerusalem at least 1700 years. While I was there, I was exploring the Armenian Quarter. People don't generally go there. There's not a whole lot to see. There's a cathedral for St. James there, the James of the Bible. Other than that, it's not a lot to see. But as I was there, there was a guy banging away on this wooden panel. And he was wearing a priest robe. He obviously looked like a very important person. And I was just fascinated by why, he was, you know, why somebody who was dressed in this like, really official-looking garb would just be beaten on a wooden panel. So I went up and asked him, you know, what's going on here? And he began to tell me this story. It's a fascinating story. When the Muslims took over Israel, which, uh, Jerusalem, which they did in the 7th century AD, so they violently captured it from the Christians, they forbade Christians to use bells in their churches. So the Muslim view of Christianity is that once we conquer you, your religion is now what they call a demi-religion. That is, it's, we'll, we might permit it, but you can't make any noise about it. Well, for a lot of us, that that would not mean a whole lot because we don't think a whole lot about church bells anymore anyway. But for a long time, people didn't have clocks. And so if the bell didn't ring, you didn't know church was about to start. But it was bigger than that because Christian bells have served, at least in Western civilization, as sort of a notification system. Uh, the, when I was in uh, Henderson going to Fried Hardeman, they would tell the story about how the bell at Fried Hardeman alerted people to the most deadly tornado that had ever blown through and saved a bunch of lives. Bells had a really important um, role in Western civilization. Now they can't ring a bell, so what the, the Armenians did was, in cleverness, they stretched out this wooden board and they would clack on the board instead. And I just kind of, I guess I grinned or something when he said it. I thought, yeah, it's pretty ingenious, pretty clever to do. He said, oh, you should know, we Armenian Christians are an outpost of heaven. Everything we do is different. We don't eat the same food. So the, the old city of Jerusalem is really small. I mean, it's surprising. You can walk across it in about 10 minutes. It's surprising how small it is. We don't eat the same foods as the people in the other quarters. We don't have the same music. We don't speak the same language. We don't have the same scriptures. We don't have the same customs. When we go home at night, we don't have the same music. We don't have the same dance. Everything for us is different. As he said, we are an outpost of heaven. You know, Peter writes to all of us as Christians and says essentially the same thing. In fact, when we tell our story, the story of us, when you tell your story, You become a character in the story at number nine. That's today's lesson. So all this time we've talked about the story of God and how God created the heavens and the earth just so he could have you, just for you, so he could love you. How we rebelled against God and in our rebellion we lost the Garden of Eden, we lost the utopia for which he created us, and how God has launched this great salvation plan to win us back. Well, in today's lesson, you become a character. Because once Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, what he said to us is, from this point forward, you are my people. And the defining characteristic of the people of God is simply this, we don't belong to this world. We are, as Peter says, foreigners and exiles. We are an outpost of heaven. We are supposed to, you should, you are supposed to live a life that shows the whole world this is what heaven is going to look like when it finally comes. That's really our mission. We are to think of ourselves as an outpost of heaven. We should think of ourselves as pilgrims on this earth. We should understand ourselves to be a minority community within the greater majority community of unbelievers. We're to live a life as, um, as People who really don't ever sink roots too deeply here because we understand that our primary function is to be not people of this land, but people of the kingdom of God. And I want to unpack that for the next few minutes because this really is one of the most important lessons in the series because in this lesson, you become a character. What you do matters now. So much of the story we've been telling for the last eight weeks has been God's part of the story. Now it's your turn. You become a character. Now I want to work through a few things in First Peter, especially chapter 2. Because in First Peter chapter 2, Peter actually addresses a situation not terribly unlike ours. In Peter's day... Christianity was exploding, and as it was, the pagan world was turning against it. So Peter writes at the beginning of the persecutions. Pretty serious persecutions follow the writing of 1 Peter. I mean, within just a couple of years. We find ourselves, however, in a world that's increasingly becoming pagan and turning against the Christian religion. It's not totally unlike Peter's scenario. That is, we find ourselves suddenly in a world where we all have an instinctive feeling that they may not like what we believe anymore. You know, you turn on your television, you watch the media, you pay attention to what's going on in corporate America, you pay attention to what's going on in the major universities in America, and you start to realize, hey, I'm not sure they like us anymore. It's disorienting. It's disorienting to have that happen at the same time that we're going through a major pandemic and we don't even, it's really hard to know what to do next. Legitimate protests and also illegitimate riots, an election on the horizon, and I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, you're anxious about this one. We're all anxious about this one. These are times for us to settle down and say, okay, in a world filled with anxiety, when we're not real sure what's going to happen, we're not sure how the world's going to respond to us, we need to make sure we understand who we are. If you know who you are, you will know what to do. So let's listen to what Peter has to say. I can do it in five quick steps. i tell you that because, you know, actually we were coached when we were learning to preach. Don't ever tell them how many points you're going to make in your sermon. You know that, don't you? You know why? Because you start a mental countdown and it's like, oh my goodness, he spent 20 minutes on point number one, 20 times five. Oh, we got another 80 minutes to go in this sermon. But I'm telling you now I'm doing five points and here's why. I'd like for you to remember these points. I'd like for you to say them back to me. Even if you don't necessarily believe them, at least if you say them back, you'll remember them and you'll say, well, that's what one guy believes. Let's start here. I'm in 1 Peter, I'm in the second chapter. I'm just going to stick to verses 9 through 12 and then maybe a few verses apart from that. But listen to what Peter has to say. So Peter, first of all, just wants us to make sure we know who we are. Here's how he puts it. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter wants us to know in this text, he's speaking to people who live in an anxious age, not totally unlike ours. They didn't have elections around the corner. But let me tell you, every time, uh, uh, you know how many, how many Caesars, you know how many uh, emperors of Rome died a natural death? There were 300 and something emperors. I used to know the number. I don't remember. Somebody out there probably knows. 340 something emperors. Two of them died a natural death. So it was always an anxious time. Most of them were poisoned or killed. Some of them lasted four weeks before they were hacked to death by somebody. They were always anxious times. And Peter's like, make sure you understand this basic truth. You are the people of God as much as the ocean around you might change in politics, as much as the pandemics may come or maybe go, as much as you might find yourself in this anxious age of, are we going to have a job? Am I going to get some kind of benefits when I lose my, and all the anxiety, make one thing clear. I belong to the people of God. We are a different people. So let me put it this way, because it really matters that we get this nuance right. On the one hand, we are stewards of the American government. If you're not American, you're stewards of your government. We have an obligation towards our government. I want Christians running for office. I want Christians working for government. We'll be the best at it. So we're stewards of this government and we shouldn't neglect that. I think churches sometimes have kind of pushed away from that. Don't push away from it. God is entrusting us with this. But at the same time, always remember your real Loyalty is the kingdom of God. Whatever happens here, your real loyalty is the kingdom of God. So I want to suggest you make a commitment once and for all to the people of God. And I think this matters because we're really struggling right now. A lot of us are. I am. With what to do when a church can't get together. So we're together today. Those of you online, you're you're still part of the community. But even those of us who are here, you see, we're wearing the mask. We can't touch. We can't hug. We can't shake hands. We haven't had the events that we used to typically have. And, and what I'm concerned about is if I'm in a weak place in my life, and I've been at weak places in my life, and I can't get with the fellowship of the church, it might cost me my soul. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that we have weak brothers and sisters. I'm not blaming them. Sometimes we just find ourselves, we wake up weak. It's happened to me. We also have some who, I, I've heard this now from several different individuals. We've got some men. I keep hearing it about men. Maybe it's, maybe it's not just men, but I hear it about men. Men who are saying to their families or their wives, you know, I don't know that I need church. They're out of the habit of it now. Just not all that interest. I have to drag them in front of the, the screen now if they're going to stay home. And you, some of you wives are concerned they're not ever going to come back. And here's what some are saying. I hope you're not saying this, but some are saying, I don't know that I need church. Okay, let me just parse that for a second. First of all, I just want you to know it's a very selfish thing to say. That's, real, that's it? I don't need the people of God? You know, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is speaking there, and he says that Jesus Christ gave his blood to purchase the church, and you're saying you don't need it. You're saying you don't need the blood of Jesus. You're saying you don't need the people of God. Are you suggesting that the world doesn't need the people of God? Are you not aware of how the church has changed the world so much of the arguments that Americans are having today about justice and all the things that are going on today? The only reason we could have that argument is because we live in a world that has been so Christianized we care about things like justice. Before we came, nobody did. Nobody did. We're the ones who started the universities. We're the ones who started the hospitals. We're the ones who started universal education. We're the ones who started the abolitionist movement. We're the ones who started the pro-life movement. We're the ones who brought human rights to the forefront. When you talk about just war theory, where do you think it came from? It came from Christians. We're the ones, the thousand points of light that have blessed the world. And you're telling me we don't need that? What happens if you shut off all the lights? And the answer is chaos, mayhem, dystopia. What I'm trying to suggest is we have always been an outpost of heaven and the world requires an outpost of heaven. Paul suggests that we're not only committed to God, but he says that in Christ, we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. What I'm trying to encourage you to do is this. Make a commitment that even with the pandemic making it difficult for us, I belong to the local church. If it's North Boulevard, make a commitment to your church. If it's whatever other church, make a commitment and say, I am part of the people of God. This is who I am. I will not back down. So help me God. So I'd like to ask you to say it with me. Not the complicated part, just this. Commit once and for all to the people of God. You willing to say that? I just wonder if you say it, maybe you'll remember it. Say it with me. Commit once and for all to the people of God. Okay, second thing I want you to see in 1 Peter, the second chapter. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against the soul. So, what he says, abstain from desires. By the way, I want to underline a moment that Peter doesn't just say abstain from sinful practices, but he says, don't even desire it. Stay away from the desire to do sinful things. I'm going to put it this way, but I'm going to come back to it. If we are to survive as an outpost of heaven, we must keep ourselves separate from the world. You cannot survive as a minority community if you assimilate. In fact, I'm going to put it this way. The greatest threat to any exile minority community, you know what the greatest threat is? It's not opposition. The greatest threat that the Jews faced all the way from the time of Abraham to the 21st century, it's not the Holocaust. It's not the pogroms of Ukraine and uh, and Russia. It's not the, the Spanish Inquisition of the 16th century in Portugal and Spain. The greatest threat a minority exile community ever faces is assimilation becoming like people around you. So if you want to know why there are still Jews today when there are no Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, Hittites, Parasites, you know why? Because they all assimilated and the Jews refused to assimilate. They married Jews. They had kosher foods. Even today, can you imagine eating kosher? Three times a day you have to think about the fact that you're a Jew. You can never forget it. They had their own school system. They had their own language. No matter where you went, they were still reading the scriptures in Hebrew. A Russian Jew reads the Hebrew scriptures. It was their way of saying, we will always be different because we are the people of God. What I'm arguing from 1 Peter is this. For us to survive in the nuttiness of the 21st century, we have got to learn that we will not be like the world around us. And I want to say, it's hard to do. But do you really want to be like them? I'm I'm not knocking them. That sounds hateful. I didn't mean it that way, but really? The world's got all the answers? The world's coming apart at the seams. Jesus gives the answer. It's not a burden. It's a privilege to be a light to the nations, a city on a hill, salt to the earth. And I just want to talk about one thing very quickly, because I do think Peter's statement don't even let yourself desire, desire evil, evil things, indicates that Peter's concerned about the battle for the mind. There's a battle going on for your mind. There's a battle going on for your children's mind. There's a battle going on for your husband's mind, battle going on for the minds of America. And I think ground zero of that battle is the entertainment industry. So I just have to say a word about it. Um, I could probably talk about it every week because I feel like I should, but... Uh, but I try not to talk about the same thing too much. Let me say this, the, America media, the American media are generally speaking not your friend. You know this. When we allow our minds to feed over and over and over on sexualized stories from Hollywood, uh, on gratuitous violence, think about how many movies where there's just, there's not only are they you know, maybe they're godless, but they're just godless. There's no God in them. The whole story is about self fulfillment. It's about the guy who courageously leaves his wife and runs off with the one woman, and life's forever happy and so forth. If you allow yourself to have those stories told over and over and over again in your head, you will lose the ability to see what God sees. As, as Paul puts it, don't have anything to do with the deeds of darkness. Stay away from it. Instead, expose it for what it is. It's shameful, he says, to mention what people do. He says, even in the secret, now it's done on television. So here's what I'm trying to argue. I'm trying to argue that what we want to do is to make sure that we are a distinct people. We have our own celebration, our own story, our own music. We have our own heroes. We have our own heroes Look, Augustine is my hero. I, I don't even know a ball player hardly anymore. I used to care about it, but now uh, my heroes are Corey uh, uh, Tambou. My, my hero is, is John Paul. Those are my heroes. The Christians who are gathered around Zion's throne, who are telling stories that are Christian stories, who have values out of Christian values. Allow those to be our people. We don't want to become like the world. How else can we show the world a better way? We are the light of the earth. We're the salt. So I'm just going to ask you, if you will, say this one with me. Even if you don't agree. If you'll say it, then first of all, I won't even know it because you're wearing a mask. But I can hear at least somebody say it. But if you say it, maybe it'll help you to remember, oh, that's what he preached today. Will you say it with me? Start with the word keep. Keep yourself separate from the world. Okay. I'm going to keep going. And um, we'll do the last three pretty quickly if you're doing the countdown. So it's uh, verse 12. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I just want to focus on this, live good lives among pagans. And here's what I want to say. While we're keeping ourselves distinct from, separate from the world, we also don't withdraw from the world. Instead, we go into the middle of the world to show the world a better way. Remember, we are an outpost of heaven. Our job is to show the world what heaven's going to be like when Jesus comes. And the best way to do this is to make disciples. You know, we talk a lot about that, but I just want to make sure you understand. If disciple-making is the mission of the church, it will solve virtually every other problem. And if disciple-making is not the mission of the church, every other problem will eventually get in the way. Think about the, com- the, the power of a common mission. One of the cool things about Boulevard, when I, the first time I came to Boulevard was in 1992. Julie and I came in September of 1992. So off and on, we, we've been knowing North Boulevard for um, almost 30 years now. And one of the things I'm p- so proud of at North Boulevard is this, I'm just proud of you guys for this. So we've got right now in this room, we have Democrats. We have Democrat, elected Democrat officials at North Boulevard. We have Republicans, elected Republican officials. Uh, I remember one time we we were uh, sitting in church and there were two guys standing next to each other. One of them was a senior editor for Mission Magazine, which was the most liberal magazine the Church of Christ has ever produced. He was sharing a songbook with an editor of Contending for the Faith, which is the most conservative journal the Church of Christ has ever produced. And they were standing on the pew, singing a song side by side. Honestly, they didn't know each other if they had, I'm pretty sure it would have been a different story, but it was so cool to think they can stay together in one congregation. You know why? Because if you've got the right mission, all the other stuff you can put up with. We can disagree on so many things at North Boulevard. As long as we keep the right mission, we are going to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That helps us stay united in the other areas where it's harder to unite. But if we lose that mission, everything else will become too important what kind of music you have, hand clappers versus no hand clappers, star bellies versus no star bellies, all that stuff becomes important when you don't have a common mission. And I want to suggest to you that it's not just the mission of the church. It should be your mission. God has put you at your place of work so you would make disciples. He put you in your neighborhood so you would make disciples. He put you in your family so you would make disciples. It is a joyful mission to be able to shine the light of Jesus wherever we go. Okay, told you I'd keep moving. So the second phrase I want to look at in verse 12 is this. He said, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong. And let's just be honest, the truth is we can expect opposition. Minority communities, pilgrim communities, outpost communities generally are not well received. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. So gone are the days when the Christian religion, especially a Bible-believing Christian version of the religion, was dominant in America. Those days are gone. We should not be surprised that the world no longer likes our sexual ethic. They're pagans after all. I don't mean that ugly. They just are. The reason the world keeps acting like pagans is because they are pagans. We shouldn't expect them to act like Christians. Why should we expect them? They're not Christians. They're pagans. And Peter says, don't be surprised by this. In fact, that's what he actually says down in verse, uh, chapter 4. He says, friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal coming on you like this is something strange. What well, do you think? The world's going to be okay when we stand up and say that's wrong and this is right? Of course, they are not going to be okay with that. In fact, Peter says, they're going to be surprised that you don't join into their recklessness. You're surprised. They're surprised too. I mentioned this a while back, but a couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I was speaking at an African-American church in Atlanta, and I spent a a retreat with the elders of that church. And one of the elders of that church, this was a priceless moment in my life. He was in his 80s. He had been a garbage collector in the city of Atlanta for his entire career. Very shy man. He wouldn't say a whole lot, but I, I got to sit with him, and I just wanted to ask him, Tell me about some of what you've seen. I mean, can you, if you imagine what he's seen through the years? Uh, he actually knew uh, Martin Luther King, Dr. King. And he would say a few things, and some of the guys around him would kind of, you know, elaborate a little bit. Because, again, he was just such a shy man, um, or at least he was with me. But here are a few things that he said that stuck with me that I just want to share with you. Their minority community in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. They said, uh, again, him working with some of the guys who were kind of filling out what he was saying, there were some jobs we knew were off limits to us as a minority. Let me just say that as Christians, as we become more and more minorities in our own country, it may be the case that some jobs are off limits to us. That's what it means to be a minority sometimes. One of the things that he said that really kind of stuck with me and choked me up was, he said, "All we needed was one guy, one black guy, in the city of Atlanta to do something bad, and for all we knew, every one of our houses was going to be burned down. There was no grace and no tolerance. That one mistake from one person could cost the whole community. So he said, it was really difficult for us because you never knew what might inflame the city against us. That's what it means to be an outpost, an exile community, a minority community." Uh, he spoke about how that uh, he had to learn to talk a certain way. I'm trying to be mindful of my time, but Julie, I don't know if you remember this. When we first moved to Portageville, Missouri, it was a, multi-general, a multi-ethnic church, diverse church. The very first potluck they had at that church, uh, they went back to the fellowship hall, and all the whites went back to the fellowship hall and got in line, and all the blacks stayed in the auditorium. It was a potluck after church on Sunday. All the blacks stayed in the auditorium. All the whites went back and got in line, and that's the first time I'd ever seen that. And I got so angry when I saw it that I went to, first of all, I went to some of the whites and I said, what in the world's going on here? Weird. I was 21 years old or whatever. And they said, you got to go talk to them. They won't come back. So I went out and I started talking to the black members and I said, Why well, you shouldn't do this. You need to be back there with the rest of us. And one of the older women, Lucille, Miss Lucille, she called me, told me to sit down next to her and she said, don't you go making trouble for us, David Young. Oh, man, that still hurts my heart. Don't you go making trouble for us. This guy was saying, you know, when we're a minority community, we just have to learn sometimes. Well, I'm giving that illustration for two reasons. One of them is because I want to make sure we get some glimpse into what many Americans have experienced. But second, I want to say minority communities sometimes have to learn we don't have all the power anymore. We have to learn a new way to relate to the world. But let me tell you this. As the conversation started to wrap up, I think he could see that I was choking up like I am now. And he says, oh, don't think it was bad. We're not apologizing for it, but he just said, you know, when we got home at night, we sang and danced when we were together. We had our blues and we had our jazz. We had our food. We had our language. We had our people. When we got together, he said it was a celebration. What I'm suggesting is to be the community of God in a world that's pagan, in a world that doesn't really believe in what we believe. There's going to be some hardship. But when we get together, it's a party. That's why we're so missing it. I didn't know how much I was missing the music until I showed up this morning. We started singing. I miss it. When we come together as the people of God, so many awesome things can happen. We ought to expect opposition, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes the opposition produces awesome things, which leads me to my last point. I didn't make you say that. Will you say it with me? Expect opposition. is just two words. Expect opposition. And here's the last thing in this verse. He says, um... Peter says, live good lives so that people can glorify God on the day he visits us. That that word visits, unfortunately, in IV, because it sounds like, oh, he's coming for dinner or something. What he means is, live the right kind of life so the whole world has a chance to be right with Jesus when he returns. And that's what I want to say. We live joyfully expecting the return of Jesus. See, here's the deal. This is what makes it tough. This part of the story. All these things now that we've talked about, we're coming down to the very end. The tough thing is that just like Jesus, when he tells the story of the mustard seed, Jesus has put the kingdom mustard seed in the ground, but it's so small you don't see it. But he says the day's going to come that it'll be such a large tree in the garden that birds can come and build their nests in it. We are in between those. We're in between the planting of the seed and the fulfillment of the bush. We're in between the start of the kingdom and the return of King Jesus. And to be in between can be difficult. It is difficult to live in the land of in between. We're living on a promise and a hope right now. And it's not yet here. So what we have to do is live as though heaven has already arrived, even though it hasn't. And it's not easy. That's why it's hard. But it's coming. And when it comes... Everything wrong will be made right. Every tear that's ever dropped will spring up in a sheaf of joy. Everything that's ever caused us pain will somehow become, by the power of God, undone. All the sorrow will be gone. No more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no more dying. Behold, he says, all things shall be new. It's a place where you don't need the sunlight because Jesus is there. That's all the light you're ever going to need. It's a place where you don't need a temple because God's going to live right among you. It's a place where gold is so common they pave the roads with it. It's asphalt there. It's a place where there are gates made of a single pearl. We know that's coming. We know who is coming to make it all right. While we live as an outpost of heaven, we know that before it's over with, he will have taken back every inch of his creation. He's not going to let it go. And so in the land of in between, we decide this is who we are. And we look joyfully to the return of Christ. So if you know who you are in this story, you'll know what to do. Guys, you know, I preach a sermon like this, and when it's over with, I just have to be honest with you, after first service, I thought, I can't even tell if they heard a word I said, not not knocking you, I just don't even know if I'm effective sometimes. Um, But if we don't get this right, we don't stand a chance. If I didn't say it well, that's on me, and I may not have. But if you hear it, and it's not sinking in, you're headed for a boatload of trouble. This is it. This is our story. Our story is that Jesus came and inaugurated the reign of God, and he has left us as an outpost of God's kingdom. And from this point till when he returns, we are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. If you get that clear, not just as a congregation, but you as an individual, nothing will move you. Unmovable, steadfast, you'll know what to do. And so I'll give you that challenge. This is our story. This is our story. And our story is a story of an outpost of heaven that says, here is where we stand. We will not back down, so help us, God. And since I said, here's where we stand, why don't we just stand up and we'll sing our song?